Okay, welcome back to the latest episode of the Scoop Rewind podcast brought to you by PPG as we dive into all the content that you're seeing across AT&T Sportsnet, Penguins Radio Network, and PittsburghPenguins.com concerning the Pens' run to the Cup in 2009 against the Detroit Red Wings. A closer look here this time at game number three as we introduce you again to our cast of characters. We have Paul Staggerwald, Sam Kassan, and Michelle Crecchiolo all here with us. Guys, we had a lot of fun leading up to this Stanley Cup final series in our first conversation last week. Now we get to dive into the series itself, and a series that didn't start the way the Penguins probably envisioned, although I don't know how much they hated their efforts in games one and two, but still an 0-2 deficit going back to Pittsburgh for game three. I got to well, say, I really had more fun than anybody else in that last episode, being a uh, bring up Red Wings fan in Detroit. So now we're getting into territory that maybe isn't as uh, fun for me to relive, but uh, it should be a good time, and Saggy, I'll let you uh, take the lead on this one. Well, Michelle, you know, you were in Detroit, and, um, you know, the thing that stood out to me after those first two games was, yeah, the Penguins played well, but they still lost the first two games of the Stanley Cup final. And if you look at statistically, when you lose the first two games like that, the chances of you coming back are not very good. It's happened a few times. Certainly, if you go down three games to none, you might as well just forget it. But... Uh, no question that the Penguins felt they played well in Detroit, and it gave them some feeling of confidence going back to Pittsburgh. But still, given the history of their performances in Detroit and not being able to really kind of, I don't know, take charge of games, uh, they did win that game in triple overtime in the previous season in the final, but you never felt like they were ever in control of a hockey game in Detroit. It just it never happened. And so two more games in Detroit, two more losses, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness. I don't know what the Penguins can do to beat this team because they're going to have to win a game in Detroit to win the series. Well, I remember just, you know, I also went to Michigan State University and uh, obviously a, a diehard Red Wings fan. And, you know, we talked about in the last episode how Pavel Datsuk wasn't available to start that series. And that's obviously a, a big blow to the Red Wings. Then you see, I mean, we have seen it, you know, every time the Penguins win the Stanley Cup, you need those young legs to come in and, you know, add that energy and add that freshness. And the Red Wings got that with Justin Ablocator, who actually, uh, you know, my freshman year at Michigan State University, so 2006, 2007, he actually led the Spartans to the NCAA National Championship, uh, beating first Ben Bishop and the main Black Bears in the first uh, semifinal game of the Frozen Four, and then beating Boston College. Uh, and Ablocator had two goals in that game. He was the MVP. He was a hero. And then for him to, uh, you know, leave Michigan State, join the Red Wings, he was a rookie in the series, he scores in game one and game two, two huge goals to help the Red Wings win. And you're like, all right, you know, you're feeling good uh, as a Red Wings fan, and especially as a Michigan State uh, student at the time. I and mean, we were losing our minds over there. <laughs> it's just so happy, uh, especially too, because we knew a lot of the guys on that men's team. Obviously, there was, you know, the men's and the women's team, uh, you know, got along. We, you know, were at the rink at the same time a lot of the time. So, you know, Applicator was a friend of ours, so to see him succeed on such a level like that on, on the biggest stage was, was pretty awesome. So, you know, I think all of us in Detroit were feeling good because, you know, you're missing Datsuk, but then you have a young guy like Applicator step up and, like you said, win those first two games in Detroit, and you're, you're feeling real good after that. I can tell you I definitely was. I actually felt the opposite. Uh, I thought after the first two games the Penguins were going to win the series, and I remember speaking with uh, Steve Finnerty, flashback name to those who uh, know the Penguins organization, we were talking to Steve Finnerty before game three. I just thought in the first two games, yeah, the Red Wings did win, and obviously not the outcome you want. I thought they looked tired. I thought they looked old. I thought the Penguins had better legs. I thought they looked fresh. I, honestly, the Red Wings won, but I felt like they were just hanging on for dear life. Like they were ready to lose that grip, and they didn't seem like the dominant team from 08. Like, and yeah, I mean, the result was the same, and 
sure, it could have gone either way, but I remember thinking that the Penguins not only were going to win the series, I thought they were going to win the next four games. I thought they, they were going to kind of come out. And, and I know that Red Wings obviously battling some injuries. Uh, Datsuk was out. I know Zetterberg was hurt. It wouldn't come out until after the series, but it was pretty obvious that he wasn't quite what he was the previous year. But, uh, again, the outcome is the same. They both lost, they lost both those games. I just thought the way they played, you know, the, last year in, uh, in 08, they just got run out of the stadium. I mean, there was just there was no competition there. Red Wings, the Detroit just ran them right out of the stadium. But this time around, I thought it was the other way around, but just the Penguins couldn't get that break they were looking for. So after the, even after the first two losses, I thought the Penguins were going to take control of the series. But that did lead into a big game three because game three, if you do, as Staggy said, you get on three nothing, then you might as well just matter. There's no coming back at that point. Well, actually, I feel like we can't not mention, too, the fight between Evgeny Malkin and Henrik Zetterberg in game two. I mean, I remember that so clearly, um, you know, feeling good, but also seeing that passion and that fire from Gino, as we obviously know is his signature now. But, you know, what did you guys think of him almost, you know, stepping up and and doing that in that game to, to kind of take the charge? I thought that uh, I remember thinking at the time that it showed great passion and leadership and uh, sort of that sort of desire, burning desire you have to have to win and show that to your teammates that you're willing to do anything to win. Uh, Sam mentioned it in our first podcast, he got an instigator penalty. He theoretically should have been suspended, but he wasn't. And, you know, a lot of times they can go back and kind of uh, adjudicate the situation after the fact and say, well, maybe he shouldn't have gotten an instigator or whatever. I don't know how they justified that, but I think, you know, you might have had another. It would have been the Malkin riot instead of the Richard riot in Pittsburgh if they had suspended him <laughs> for the next game. But uh, fortunately, he was uh, available because he turned out to be the man uh, for the Penguins uh, in the in the final analysis, getting the Conn Smythe. So uh, no question, uh, that, that was a, a great display of desire and one that I'm sure resonated with the team going into the next game. I took off the bat for Zetterberg, who basically got jumped in that situation. <laughs> he wanted no parts of that. And then his he's on the ground, and like, was everywhere. <laughs> it was just chaos. I think Malkin like saying, "No, this, this is happening. This is happening. Whether you want it or not, this is going to be." Yeah, I agree with Staggy absolutely. I thought he showed incredible passion. Um, a little bit of frustration too, because again, I think the Penguins played so well in those first two games, and to come out of that 0-2, I think it was a little bit of frustration. But uh, it, it shows you how much they cared, how much they wanted to win, how, that deep desire and that deep drive. And when, when you see the eventual consummate winner, because he ended up being obviously the playoff MVP, you see a guy like that and a team leader and one of your best players go out and do something like that, it certainly sends a message to the rest of the team, like, I'm not giving up. This isn't over. I'm going to play till the last last second. I mean, there's like two seconds left. And, and Stacky's right. He did get an instigator penalty in the final two minutes of the game. It's supposed to be an automatic suspension. But I do think the NHL did the right thing because it wasn't like, it wasn't like he went after him and jumped him. It was this crazy thing. It was kind of a mutual thing. But uh, I, you don't want to have a, a Stanley Cup final without one of the best players, marquee players. So Red Wings fans may disagree. Yeah, I was going to say, I, we would have gladly taken uh, <laughs> a game without Malkin. But what do you guys remember from the team's demeanor after game two, just what they were saying in the locker room, uh, just in terms of how they felt they played and, and their mindset going forward into game three? Well, what I remember is that they were confident because they had played so well at home. You know, they were six and two on home ice in the playoffs, and and uh, they had a real run of success on home ice. So they felt like you know, if they got the Red Wings back in their barn, they could come back and even the series. So I, I think that the Penguins is typical of a 
of a confident championship caliber team, which they turned out to be, uh, they they certainly believed that they could win. I don't, I don't think that they came away uh, losing some of their belief. I think they, if anything, maybe as uh, as you were saying, uh, Sam, they had even more belief uh, because they felt like they had played well. I did see a quote where Matt Cook uh, said that he he felt the Penguins had played really well in the first two games. So uh, they were undaunted by it in terms of their confidence. It was just a matter of them going out and doing it. Yeah, I think they were more unfazed. In 08, it was more that deer in headlights that, oh, man, like they just got run over by a truck, whereas this time around, I think they really did feel they deserved to win at least one of the games, maybe not both. I felt like they, they, they believed that they deserved to at least win one of the two games. They were very happy, and they didn't feel as overwhelmed as they did in 08. So I think they were still very confident. As you pointed out, they were incredible at home. So getting the series to shift back at home, I think they were really looking forward to getting back into Pittsburgh and Mellon Arena and getting that crowd going and getting the, getting the juices flowing, getting the white out, all those good aspects. You know, they, they were just so dominant during that entire run, the entire season to that entire run at home. And, and like I said, I, I really do believe in the room, they were more disappointed. They felt they should have won. So I think the confidence was still there. There was still a belief in that room they were going to win this thing. There are some great shots uh, in the DVD from the 2009 Cup run of the players arriving to Mellon Arena before Game 3 that I was laughing out about that. You got Chris Letang with his backwards flat brim. Mark we have to talk about this. Yeah, right. Mark Andre Fleury's got his backwards flat brim on with the suit. Chris Letang, the backwards flat brim. I just feel like it's swag. You know, they had some swag to themselves that maybe came with the territory, having been there before. Guys, first of all, I, they should have been arrested by the fashion police, though. Let's just say that. Chris Letang, I think if he looked back on that, he would be horrified to see that he was wearing a backwards baseball cap with a suit. So I definitely want to show that to him at some point. And see, uh, yeah, that was just, before uh, the days when players were all wearing toques with their suits. Yeah. Uh, so they were, I guess, on the cusp of coming up with the right look, but it just wasn't quite there yet. Thank God they went in a different direction. Rock that outfit. You definitely have to have some swagger and, and some confidence. That's they sure. haven't gone full-blown off the Matthews yet. <laughs> Hopefully they don't go that route. The two in the suits, I'm fine with that. So you guys were in the building that night. What was that like leading up to game number three? I mean, you saw the whiteout on the TV, but you guys were there. What was it like experiencing it? Well, looking back at it after there, watched the video of Mario dropping the puck. And when he came out, you talk about a way to get things off on the right foot. Uh, for your run at home in the Stanley Cup final, the atmosphere at that moment when he walked onto the ice and he just stood there and they were just it was just like an outpouring of love for Mario and that's what got the building really going before the game even started. That was awesome. I mean, I, I thought that was a fantastic moment in Penguins history actually to see it. It was a stroke of brilliance really to have him drop the puck too because it just got the crowd going right away and it, uh, everything got off uh, to the kind of start the Penguins wanted to start with uh, on home ice. It's amazing how in hockey, when you got a team that's just raring to come out of that locker room and get that first goal, they often can do it. I, I've seen that before where you, you kind of knew that a team was just almost like they were caged animals waiting to be released. And uh, the Penguins were able to get that first goal. And I think a lot of it had to do with just the atmosphere that was uh, ignited there by the Mario dropping the puck at the start of the game. Yeah, one of the best atmospheres I can remember. I think I wasn't obviously there in 08, so I can maybe compare, but I felt like even the fans at that point still had a belief that they were going to get this thing done. And like I said, it was just completely two different series from 08 to 09. And, and again, like, I, I do 
when I put the uh, the video back on, because obviously we rewatched re the game uh, in preparation for this, when I put the video back on. The first thing that came out was the whiteout, and you know, all these things happen. It's been so many years, and you kind of forget about that, or at least I did. Anyway, and I saw the whiteout in the crowd, and just like this overwhelming sea of white, and this noise is boistering out, and uh, it was unbelievable. And obviously, when Mario takes the ice, just the ethics to the level, the, the cacophony of all the noise just should have probably blew the roof off the way it was. And, and Saggy's absolutely right. Whoever came up with the idea that Mario come out of that puck was brilliant because it really got the, the fans going. And I think it got the players going, too. Here comes the owner. Here comes the legend uh, coming out here to drop the puck. And he's confident. He was walking out there with that Mario sphere and presence that he has. And it just I feel like that almost percolated down into the rest of the bench on the, on the Penguins team. And, and you're right, Saggy. They were like a caged animal. As soon as that puck dropped, from the get-go, I mean, they were all over Detroit, and, and obviously you talk about getting the first goal, and that's exactly what they did. Well, I have to say, that first goal scored by Max Talbot, I think when you go back and you look at that play, and I know we all have a few times, I'm sure everyone has at this point many times, Max did a lot of things before that goal to actually set up the sequence that led to that goal. First, he lifts Dan Cleary's stick as the Red Wings were charging towards the net, the Penguins' end of the ice. Dan Cleary, by the way, had a series of unfortunate events in this entire shift. Uh, <laughs> later on, when the Penguins were in the Red Wings' zone, I don't remember who the defenseman was for Detroit, trying to pass it up to Cleary. He was a little off balance. In the process of trying to catch the pass, he keeps the puck in his own zone. Geno tracks it down over on the wall and feeds Talbot, who scores, and all of a sudden it's one nothing. Yeah, speaking of that, the, 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 when it happened, actually uh... – Another underrated aspect was as the Penguins were running the zone after Talbot did the stick check in his own zone, 22-year-old defenseman by the name of Chris Letang rode the net on the plate, swooped around the bottom of the goal, and was trying to get back to his defensive position when the puck was coming to Cleary. And then you're right, Josh, like he clearly tips it. Obviously, a little off balance is a bad pass, is a bad outlet pass. He tips it, and then Letang lifts his stick, steals the puck back, but he's kind of on his backhand right at the blue line. He lifts this little little lob, little backhand lob pass to the wall where getting Malkin is. And as soon as Malkin gets it, uh, Talbot takes a beeline right to that high slot. As soon as it comes to Malkin, he goes straight to Talbot one time into the net. So I think Crystal Tang did incredible, like so many small little things had to kind of go right and go the Penguins' way. But you can see the brilliance of Crystal Tang just on that play alone. I know we'll get to his goal later, but just the smarts. And, and again, he was 22 years old at the time. You could see the talent. You could see what he's got, the, the potential there. And you'll have to see the aggressiveness driving to the net and tracking back to get back into his position. Then the smart play. And so again, they're just dumping the puck into the zone, trying to keep the zone. He sees Malkin on the uh, wall. Lifts a little, he had to float it, too. He had to give a little float. Lifts a little floated backhander right to him on the stick, and then bing, bing, both for the Penguins. And Max Talbot, I mean, what can you say about him? Uh, as this game unfolds, you see what a superstar <laughs> he was <laughs> in that series. Uh, just phenomenal. And that was a good shot. I mean, that was a long-range one-timer that he drilled into the net, you know. Perfect pass from Malkin, and uh, he got all of it start the game for the Penguins, even though the Red Wings came right back and got the, the next goal. Well, you know what I thought was interesting about the Red Wings responding back is that, you know, a lot of this is so much about the coaches getting the matchups they want, and I know Dan Bilesma being back at home was looking forward to that. And then right before Henrik Zetterberg tied the game at 1-1 less than two minutes later, uh, you know, Dan Bilesma put uh, uh, Jordan Stull out and then quickly got Sidney Crosby on the ice, you know, at the last minute to have, you know, the Penguins' first line against uh, the Wings' fourth line. And then right after play started, Mike Babcock immediately responded with a quick change you know, to watch those intricacies and guys having to be aware of, you know, just who's on the ice or getting guys on the ice and, and things like that. So 
Um, definitely uh, an interesting, smart move by Babcock to immediately respond back to Biles' move to get uh, try to get that uh, preferable matchup that he wanted. The matchups became an important thing because uh, uh, you could see uh, uh, Dan Bilesman, who often you know put Crosby and Malkin together, and we called it the two-headed monster. Uh, he was obviously trying to get Sid out when Zetterberg wasn't on the ice, and Zetterberg was that much of a factor. You know, we talk a lot about Sid being the best 200-foot player in the game today. Well, I could think you could say that Zetterberg was the best 200-foot player in the game at that time. Sid might have been the best offensive player uh, in the league, but from a from a two-way standpoint. Zetterberg was incredible. He was so good defensively, and he could generate a lot of offense. So uh, he was a difficult guy to play against and, and a guy that literally Dan Bilesman felt he had to get Sidney Crosby away from at times. That's how much they respected the abilities of Henrik Zetterberg. Well, yeah, in the 2008 final, the Penguins had a lengthy five-on-three, and Zetterberg's the player, the forward, that's out on the top of the triangle killing that penalty. And, and he's also, you know, that, that series, he scored a franchise record 13 goals and had 27 points. I mean, it truly is remarkable, Staggy. I think you're right. I, I don't think we talk about it enough, or the league never talked about it enough, how much of a overall threat Henrik Zetterberg was. We talked about the start of the game, trying to get off to a good start. They started the Jordan Stahl line, the Cook Kennedy Stahl line, because obviously they get the last change, and the Red Wings came out with Lister and Zetterberg, so they came out with the, the Cook so they spent the first 30 to 40 seconds in the offensive zone, which wore down Zetterberg and Lidstrom. So they had to go change as soon as the Detroit got it out. And then they countered with the Crosby Malkin. and I think it was either Fedotanko or Garen. They would always kind of rotate that other winger. But um, they, they countered with those guys. And, you, and again, you could see the matches play. But at that point, Zetterberg and Lidstrom were already gassed. So they couldn't go back out. And um, I remember that happened later in the, uh, I think it was the start of the third period. I might be getting ahead of myself. It was kind of apropos. But they did the same thing. They started that line, and then there was a, a icing by the Red Wings. And instead of uh, the Red Wings actually smartened up at that point, they did not start Zetterberg and Lister to start the third period uh, against the stall line. But then they iced the puck. And when they iced the puck, obviously those guys had to stay out there. I think it was Stewart and Cronwall were kind of stuck out there. And then that's when uh, the Penguins would counter with that Malkin, you know, two-headed monster Crosby line and. Uh, Lineup changes, and we talk about the home advantage. It's obviously it's the crowd, it's the energy you get from that, but also having that last change. Uh, the face-offs, I think, were a big thing too. Getting having the first player get the stick down, the centerman were able to win more face-offs and generate more possessions. So I think uh, from that standpoint, I think the home field, the home ice advantage, was a big key, particularly because they were trying to get away from Zetterberg. Right. I, I I got the feeling in watching the first period of this game that because of the emotions were running really high and the adrenaline was really going. Uh, the game took on a different look. I, I heard Doc Emmerich make reference a couple of times to how different the games was from the first two games in Detroit. It had a more frenetic, sort of volatile feel to it. Like you, you weren't quite sure what was going to happen next. I think there were a lot of unforced errors in this game where guys were turning pucks over. You know, I had never heard the term puck management before. The first guy who I ever heard say that term was Mike Babcock. I don't know if he invented the term. He's the first guy I ever heard say it. And he was saying it way back then. He had the term puck management. And today we all know what that means. But it, it was a great term, I think, for, for you know, the one thing that the Penguins have always been sort of guilty of when they're not playing their best hockey is over-managing the puck, trying to, you know, make plays they shouldn't. And, and they turned some pucks over in this, this game. In the first period, there was a chance Zetterberg had on a wraparound opportunity when Hal Gill turned the puck over. Uh, and then later... As we move into the game, remember Fedotenko came to the blue line and turned the puck over right at their blue line, and Michael Samuelson had a had a breakaway opportunity. So he hit the post. Uh, 
So, you know, I, I felt like the Penguins were still in that mode of really, uh, um, I don't know, too energetic, if you will, or too excited, you know, and maybe trying to force plays when they really didn't need to. And as the game wore on, I, you could see the Penguins becoming more confident and playing their game in a more controlled way and, uh, and really kind of tipping the, tipping the ice, I think, against the Detroit Red Wings. I mean, there were ebbs and flows, but for the most part, I thought the Penguins got better as the game went along in terms of playing their game uh, in a more controlled way. We talked a little bit about the games in Detroit and how the Red Wings got those first two games, and maybe in the result of getting those first two games got a little bit of bounces going their way as well. Penguins down 2-1 in this game in the first period, and they had too many men on the ice for over 20 seconds that was not called by the officials. They get a power a couple minutes later, and then that goal Sam talked about by Chris Letang ties the game at two. So maybe the hockey guys just swinging that pendulum a little better back in the Penguins' favor. I was watching uh, that Ona, and I'm sure I think all of us did, and hearing Sid talk about how he felt, you know, they deserved it. He was happy they got it. And I was getting so fired up hearing him say that. I'm like, that should have been a penalty. Come on. It's so obvious. But it, it, knowing now how, you know, championship, but, you know, as a Red Wings fan, you hear Eddie Olchick getting so fired up, like, you know, just saying, you know, the Doc, the, the Penguins have six skaters. The Penguins have six skaters. And you're watching it like, come on, how does no one notice this? Um, definitely a, a big break. And, and like you said, then it turns into – you know, a big tying goal for the Penguins. You guys know who the referees were? No. You're gonna put I decided to look it up because and I I couldn't find the names of the two linesmen. I didn't have the right summary in front of me. It was, didn't have the linesmen, but it had the referees. It was Paul Dvorsky and Dennis LaRue. Those were the two referees. And, uh, you know, it made me think of Paul Dvorsky. I, just calling games all those years when he was referee, he was kind of the master of looking right at a penalty and not calling it. <laughs> to drive me crazy. And, uh, you know, he thought it was a, a win for the referees if they didn't call a penalty the whole night long, you know. So, uh, and there were some things that went uncalled in this game. But that's okay. There were also some ticky-tacky kinds of calls that were made. But that was an egregious oversight by the two referees. I mean, totally I egregious. Agree, I agree, Saggy. Way with it, which was, you know, in retrospect, one of those hockey god moments where you go, man, it must be our, must be our time. We're getting away with that stuff because if they score there, you know, I don't know what happens in that game. If they get a goal on a power play you know, after that, because that would have given them a two-goal lead, right? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been 3-1. Yes, yeah, it was uh, Derek Amell and Derek Amell and Pierre Rafiko. Right. The two linesmen. Yeah, that would have made it 3-1. And, and when looking back now, we can say that was maybe the quote-unquote turning point of the series because you're right, Saggy. If Detroit scores there, because this is the thing. Start. They're playing great. They're taking it to Detroit. They're up one nothing. Things are all going their way. Then Zetterberg scores. Oh man, it's one one. Then Bronson scores and it's two one. Now you're starting to think like, oh man, what more do we have to do? We're dominating them and we're losing on the scoreboard two to one. Like, what more do we have to do? So mentally, you got to think they're in a little bit of a fragile state. So there's a penalty there, and Detroit scores, and, and their power play was really good that series too. Detroit's power play. Well, really all all the playoffs that year. But if they score again to make it 3 1, you got to think the Penguins are just completely deflated. Like, you got to have that mentality of, like, one, you know, what, what more do we have to give? So it was a huge, obviously, a huge missed call. Maybe the turning point, because then again, maybe they call the penalty and the Penguins kill the, the penalty, get a little momentum from the penalty kill and score. Jordan Phillips scores a shorthanded goal on the penalty. You know, you know, you know how these things play out. So <laughs> we'll never know, obviously, hindsight being 2020, but clearly it was a, a huge missed call, a huge play in the Penguins' favor. I got to credit Mark Eaton and whoever was on the bench screaming to him to kind of come off. <laughs> you could tell, like, he skates up to the blue line and he's standing at the blue line. And he does two head back. Like, he can hear them calling to get off and he doesn't know why. 
and slowly get off. And I think he <laughs> put it together after like a second. I think the first time he turned his head, he's like, what, what, what are they talking about? Then they, the second time, <laughs> then he turned and, and went slowly so no one would really catch that he was jumping to the bench. But oh, in fairness, uh, Sam, I think after they got that go-ahead goal, the 2-1, the one that made it 2-1, they, they, uh, the Penguins were a little bit shell shocked there, and the fans—you can see the looks on the fans' faces. I'm sure in the building there was a there was a feeling of impending doom at that point because the Red Wings had snatched the momentum back. They went for a stretch uh, in the first period where they had nine straight shots, the Red Wings. So it wasn't total domination for the Penguins. It was domination early, maybe, or at least you know the Penguins carrying the play a bit early. But then when they got that second goal, then they kind of controlled the game for a while and had the Penguins kind of on their heels. Uh, and fortunately, the Penguins were able to come back from that. But uh, no question that there were ebbs and flows where the Red Wings were were controlling the play and I think scaring Penguins fans a bit there uh, early in the hockey game. Well, I think after the Penguins went up one nothing, Detroit had the next nine or ten shots. They outshot the Penguins nine nothing or ten nothing after the goal that Calvary goal. And it wasn't like that nine straight shots without the Penguins getting one. Yeah, so it wasn't like the Penguins. It wasn't like they weren't trying to get shots. They continued to play. I just think Detroit kind of pulled back on that momentum. In fact, I, I looked it up. They they outshot the Penguins twenty six to eleven in the first two periods. Well, they they, they owned the uh, second by the Red Wings if you think about it. Oh, the Red Wings really dominated the second period. We'll we'll get to that, but yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was yeah, it was a perfect back and forth. It was two championship fighters exchanging blows, pretty much. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also worth mentioning that to continue his disastrous first period, Dan Cleary was the red <laughs> when uh, Chris Letang scored that power play goal. So uh, probably a forgettable 20 minutes for him. Players that you know they in bad term, not the greatest of all time term, you know, throughout a series. And I remember as Red Wings fans, Dan Cleary was that guy for us in that series. I just remember any time he was on the ice, like, oh. Come on, like, <laughs> get it together, man. <laughs> so it's, it's making me laugh that you've mentioned him a couple of times. That's exactly how all Red Wings fans felt uh, watching him play uh, in the series. But um, I quickly, I just wanted to say, I mean, Chris Letang with a huge goal there, one of a handful of huge goals he scored in the playoffs. But, I mean, just how much of a coming out party was this for Chris Letang? It's interesting. And, Josh, you probably feel the same way as someone who wasn't around the team uh, back in this time. But, you know, for him being such a, you know, leader of this team and important player for this team now, but the team is more of a support player back then. It's definitely, uh, I think, interesting to watch. Um, just what was it like for, you know, Saggy, you and Sam to kind of see him emerge as this, uh, you know, key player for the Penguins in this run? Well, we knew he was of his talent, right, Sam? We knew he was just incredibly talented. Uh, when Dan Bilesman took over, uh, he wasn't thrilled with Chris Letang's play. Uh, as I recall, if I'm not mistaken, he actually scratched him uh, early on when he when he uh, came in. So there wasn't. Uh, 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 I mean, it took a while for Dan Bowsman to kind of get the message to Chris Letang, did he? and uh, Letang obviously blossomed uh, in the shadow, if you will, of Sergey Gonchar. You mentioned being a second bit player. Well, he wasn't the guy who controlled the power play. It was Sergey Gonchar who controlled it. So Letang was a guy like a trigger man, a guy to shoot the puck. He'd go back and get the puck very quickly because of his skating ability. And uh, but Gonchar always carried the puck up the ice. Uh, and one of the things I noticed about Latang uh, in the game was that on on one power play, and we'll get to it later, but he went right to the front of the net sometimes. Like he he was he was all over the ice. Like he wasn't. You mentioned earlier about him pinching, and he he just had the utmost confidence. He you talk about playing on your toes. I mean, he really didn't hold back at all. It, it's like he wasn't overthinking. He was just playing. And uh, I I. 
Love that shot on the power play because he tried to shoot it the first time and hammered it to the net, and Osgood was caught off guard because it didn't appear to be set. I still don't know how it went in, to be honest with you. Uh, but it was, I think, of the quick release and then catching Osgood kind of in between there, not really being set totally for that next shot is why it went in. Yeah, and the funny thing was going back and watching him play, it's almost – he hasn't really changed much. I think that's what really stood out to me. He's, um, obviously, then he was much younger, much less experienced, much less mature, but as maturation of the game. But to see him, it's the same crystal thing we always see, you know, he's skating – Great, you know, the incredible skating, the passing, you know, driving to the net, all those things, and even kind of getting into scrums, you know, throwing those little slashes here and there, and barking at the referee through whistles. And this is a 22-year-old Crystal Tang, and uh, and he's kind of the same player now. I mean, that, that was what was so funny because back then we're watching this kid play, and like, man, who knows how? Who knows how he's going to develop? How he's going to turn out? How good he can be? And obviously, he's gotten much better over the years, and his role has had grown because then he was just a third pair defenseman with Mark Eaton at that time, but of what he would become, like the, the little glimpse, whether it was him making those, those soft little plays at the blue line, the little dumps, uh, driving to the net, as Staggy said, coming to become the net presence on the uh, power play, or uh, his ability to drive and forecheck and happens to then get back on the defensive end. So, it, you, you know, you can see those glimmers there, and you, you, it's amazing to see him actually fully mature into his game. Yeah, he, had, he had a great partner, too. Mark Eaton was a Mark really Eaton. solid defender. He was a very intelligent player. He was a, uh, Ray Shiro's first free agent signing. And it uh, didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but, you know, every one of those players played a role, a very important role. They were each pieces of a of a complete championship puzzle. And uh, Mark Eaton probably d- deserves more credit than he than he gets because he was that steady guy who could play with Latang and watch the back door and allow Latang to play with the freedom that he played with. Absolutely. That's a great point, Saggy. He, he was that, that responsible guy that, you know, you, you always had that security blanket, if you will. So Latang could pinch because he knew – he had a little safety net on the back end, and then he could he could try to get back. But I always knew Mark Eaton was back there, and as as quiet as he was, as solid as he was, it's always a good thing when you're a defensive defenseman. Let people notice you, that means you're doing your job. So yeah, he was a two, former flyer, wasn't he? He was a yeah, yeah. and a former little <laughs> flyer. We talked about this in the first yeah. episode. <laughs> 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 Hello, Hello, one. Yeah, he's a former little flyer alumni. Uh, so our score was uh, two two after two or after one, excuse me. Just curious for what you guys remember from after that first period, because obviously the tangle was pretty big to get things even going into the intermission. But was it almost a take a deep breath and reset situation? Because we know how the second period started. Detroit had the onslaught. Mark Andre Fleury was very busy for the Penguins and very good for that matter too. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was a relief uh, to come back and tie that game because, as I said, it felt like the Red Wings kind of uh, took the wind out of the sails uh, for the Penguins there when they got that second goal. So for the Penguins to come back and get a goal on the power play and tie it was big. Uh, You know, I I think what we were seeing was the importance of the Penguins' power play. You know, you hear it, special teams and goaltending in the playoffs, and uh, there was no doubt that that was the, the thing that was the difference in this game for the Penguins. Their power play was outstanding, a couple goals. And Flurry was great when he had to be. So, uh, you know, to, to be able to go into that intermission on even terms with Detroit it was a, almost like a win, because, you know, at that point uh, of the period because they were behind and they found a way to dig themselves out of that little hole and get back uh, to on even terms. So I think uh, everybody was feeling pretty good after 20 minutes. And I'd say especially the way that second period went because it was all Detroit. And it yeah. felt like the Packers did not get out of their zone. They couldn't get any four check going. They they couldn't. They basically on their heels all the time. Talk about playing on your toes, playing on your heels. 
they were on their heels for basically the entire 20 minutes of that second period. And you talked about feeling lucky to get out of the first period at 2-2. I think the Penguins were extremely lucky, thanks to Marc-Andre Fleury, and some great defensive efforts, too, uh, some block shots and uh, some good some good clears when the puck was in the slot and loose pucks in the crease. But um, on a penalty kill, sorry, I said to interject with that. I remember just like watching the series again made me remember too how much people in Detroit hated Brooks Orbeck. I mean, he was just I think that. Just limited to Detroit. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Yeah, he he definitely was that kind of player that you hate uh, to play against, but love to have on your team. And I, you mentioned, you know, these plays people were making on a penalty kill and we're thinking like how is that not called how would he get away with that like just being so yeah being so mad about it but yeah sorry i just had to interject and, and say man brooks Orpik really uh you know kind of stuck in the cry i think of of all hockey fans that weren't penguins fans but especially red wings fans yeah well the detroit outshot them 14 to 4 in that period and don't forget as staggy mentioned earlier samuelson hit a post yeah uh, rafalski hit a post on the power play with the crossbar so you've got two posts Outshot him fourteen to four. They had a huge penalty kill in that in that period that Postropic may or may not have covered the puck. Um, so yeah, I think the Penguins are extremely, extremely lucky that it was two two heading the third period. And as Taggy said, it almost felt like it was a win. You know, it, even though the score is tied, it feels like it's a win to be able to escape after forty minutes. It, it all comes down to this third period, and you've got still got a shot. And basically, it's uh, and as Taggy said, you lose game three, the series is over. So basically, the Penguins' entire season comes down to that third period. One thing I did notice, though, and I, I didn't really remember it that vividly, but I, when I was watching the game, was the physicality of the Penguins. I, I thought that Matt Cook was a force. Like, when you look at back at, the, at that cup run for the Penguins, he was a guy who was not with the Penguins in 08, and he was a huge difference for the Penguins in 09. And, you know, I, I, I've said many times, the team with the best role players wins the Stanley Cup. And what I came away with to just this game on a holistic basis, just watching it again, it reminded me of how excellent the Penguins role players were. I mean, Max Talbot was phenomenal in this hockey game. And Matt Cook, to me, was a star in this game. He drew a penalty later. It led to the uh, what proved to be the game-winning goal on the power play. But he was hitting people, and he was wearing them down. And we all know that in the playoffs, it's a, it's a war of attrition. And in the series, every one of those hits, you know, takes a little bit of something out of the team. You mentioned, Sam, you thought they were tired. I felt like the Penguins' energy, their skill, the fact that they could come at you with a lot of skill on all four lines and they could throw different combinations out there that could keep the Red Wings on their heels a bit. Uh, while they did control play in that second period, I thought there were still enough hits and enough things that were happening from a physical standpoint that were maybe going to pay off later for the Penguins in this hockey game. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things I pointed out in my uh, article today on Penguins.com, kind of reliving and recapping this game three was the Penguins out hit the Red Wings 36 to 17. Okay, 36 to 17 in this game. Matt Cook, in the start of that second period, you mentioned it, uh, they started that Cook stall Kenny line again. He threw a huge hit in the Cron wall, like 20 seconds into the period, kind of setting the tone again, you know, after, uh, after all that. And then you mentioned Matt Cook, but Chris Kunitz had 11 hits in game three. 11 hits. Another guy, you mentioned Cook wasn't on the 018. Kunitz wasn't on the 018 either. So uh, everyone thinks about the Penguins and they think of that 019. They think, oh, they were a skilled team. They were fast and they were skating, but they were physical. I mean, they, they could really beat you down physically. I mean, not to mention like the Brooks Orbix and Stahl. You know, he was physical. Tyler Kenny, I mean, he's small, but he's throwing his body around. 
uh, you know, he uses it well, and, and they could really grind you down all the way down. And you're right, the Red Wings are tired. The Penguins just kept coming at them and coming at them. I think they really did wear them down as the series went on. As much pressure as the Red Wings were putting on the Penguins in the second period, it is worth mentioning that from late in the second until about just prior to the midway point of the third, the Red Wings didn't get a shot on goal in a 10-minute span. So the Penguins kind of started to shift things in their favor in this game. Is, is it more on, as you mentioned, Sam, that huge third period that wasn't just a series definer, but a season definer for the Penguins as far as keeping them within striking distance in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, and Chris Osgood, to return the favor early in the third period, he was pretty good. I mean, we know it's some of the saves he made in games one and two in Detroit, but he was also strong to start the third period with the Penguins kind of tilting the table a little bit there to try to get back into this game. It is amazing, though, how, like, that that's those swings of momentum, right? You hear Mike Sullivan today talk about how do you get momentum back, you know, when it's going against you. And it's, it's not an easy thing to do against a team like Detroit, you know, because they possess the puck so well. Once they get it, it was real hard to get it away from them. Marion Hosa was scary. To me, he was their scariest offensive of player by a mile. He was really scary guy. And, uh, you know, he, fortunately, he, he didn't do as much damage as it looked like he was capable of doing. But what I what stood out about that third period was that the Penguins had essentially weathered a storm. So it's like there's storms that, that blow in either direction during the course of a hockey game and during the course of a series. And in that game, there was a, definitely a storm blowing in that second period against the Penguins, but they weathered it. So when they came out in the third, I mean, that burst was over uh, because and, and from, a, from a Red Wings point of view, you know this, Michelle, you were probably thinking, man, we dominated the second period. We got nothing to show for it. Uh, you know, so it's like the, psychologically, you, know, you got the Red Wings thinking that they that they uh, basically missed an opportunity to take control of the hockey game. And the Penguins are thinking, man, we, you know, we, we weathered that storm. Let's go get them now in the third. And it was just a total shift in the third period. The Penguins went into more of a defensive posture. Uh, and, and as I said earlier, I felt like their game became, they became more confident with their game, with their overall game, and, and less motivated by that adrenaline and that, you know, uh, uh, more more controlled in the way that they were playing the game against Detroit. I thought their third period was one of their best in the entire series, really. Um, the Red Wings had three shots total. Uh, Josh mentioned they went 10 minutes straight without a shot. They had three shots total. They had one early, and they had two late when they were down. So the final 10 minutes of the game, the Penguins are up. They only got two shots on goal when they're basically fighting for the games on the line here. And the Penguins were able to limit them. It, was just, it showed how much they possessed the puck, how much they were in the offensive zone, all those things. But uh, chances weren't breaking through, weren't breaking through. And, and, and the power play that really came through for them when they came up with that power play. led to the goal was sort of a, a composite or a, you know, a, a microcosm of the period in, as, as a whole because they That's dominated – control of the puck. When the Penguins power play is at its best, going all the way back to that era and still today, it's when they outwork the opposition, when they win battles for the puck. And what was really cool about that power play was that um, they won puck battles and they were switching positions. Billy Guerin was in front of the net. Then all of a sudden he was on the half wall making a big play to keep the puck alive. Uh, they were they were pouncing on pucks. Malkin and Crosby were switching positions. Sid was going behind the net. So there, there was a lot of confusion for the Red Wings penalty killers. And as you watch that power play, it's unbelievable how tired the Red Wings penalty killers are by the time Gonchar scores, scores that goal. I mean, if you couldn't feel that goal coming, uh, you, you don't have any nerves or feelings in your body. Because it was just so obvious that, that the Red Wings were headed for a disaster there. They could not... They, first of all, they weren't pressuring the Penguins at all. So maybe that's because they had no energy left. But then they couldn't get the puck either. So the combination of those two things, the Penguins just eventually 
throw through. And that, that shot by Gonchar, was, that was vintage Sergei Gonchar there. That shot from the blue line, just he just rifled it into the net. It was so, so great. You can imagine the feeling in the building at that point when that puck went into the net. You could tell. You could hear it. Yeah. You could kind of feel it on television. But, man, uh, that was exhilarating, to say the least. Saggy read my recap as I pointed out that Billy Garen shift. Because there was a play where the puck was going to the wall, and you had Garen and Zetterberg both going for it. And 38-year-old Billy Garen beat Zetterberg to the puck. And then Listrom came to get support. So you got 38-year-old Billy Garen fighting Zetterberg and Listrom on the And then they work it around, and 20-odd seconds later, whatever it was, it allowed them to keep that possession. And then 20-odd seconds later, Gonchar scores. But you talk about the little things. Like, if he doesn't keep the puck there and the Red Wings clear it, Red Wings get a change, they get fresh bodies, or on top of that, maybe the Penguins change and go to the second power play, who knows. But it was that one, I mean, obviously there's many puck battles, as you mentioned, Saggy, but that one really stood out to me to see the 38-year-old veteran, you know, trying to win that Stanley Cup before he sails off into the sunset, going out there and just giving it all. You know, Michelle, from your perspective, uh, you know, as much as you love Zetterberg, in that situation made me think this guy's yeah. being overtaxed. It's almost like they require too much of him uh, because he's killing penalties. He's on the power play. He plays even strength. You know, he's required to check Crosby, a tremendous amount of responsibility. And now here he is out here at a crucial time of the game, killing a, a Penguins power play. And he, he's obviously got very little gas left in the tank. Well, I mean, you guys have seen it. I mean, we've lived it. Seg, you lived it twice. Well, three times, I guess, back-to-back uh, final runs, just what they can take out of guys. And, you know, when the Penguins won again in 17, you know, they just themselves through the postseason. And I think that's uh, almost with the Red Wings, you know, on one hand, you have these, you know, experienced veteran uh, players with pedigree. But, yeah, at a certain point, those you want to have those young legs that the Penguins did because even though they both went through the same, you know, run the previous year, uh, the, the Penguins definitely had the advantage in terms of freshness and that youthful exuberance. So, uh, you definitely felt that Zetterberg was tacked. I mean, he was literally doing it all, literally doing it all. And on such, you know, in such a high pressure situation, it being, you know, the, the ultimate stage and battling for the ultimate prize. So it definitely was, I think you could see the wheels start to fall off uh, in that regard. And it definitely was, I think, you know, as I was saying, we were feeling good after games one and two, but I think, you know, this time was when I think we started to realize, like, man, we can do everything right and still not get the job done. It's not going to be like it was last year where we just bulldozed through this Penguins team and just, you know, basically just, you know, won so easily. It's not going to be like that. So I think uh, that was definitely where it all started to turn for us in Detroit. Sam, you said it. That, that third period was maybe the most important period of the whole series for the Penguins. The game was on the line, and their power play came through, and they played a great third period, and they had to have gotten a tremendous amount of confidence from that. Uh, and, and I think they probably had a lot of belief that they could, they could uh, you know, withstand uh, any pressure that the Red Wings brought on and that they could also deliver a lot of pressure of their own. So uh, it was a really, really important period. And I uh, can't say enough about Max Talbot. Like, I, I just – it just blows my mind watching him. He could have had – Tom Fitzgerald whispered something in his ear on the bench after he scored, uh, the, the empty net goal. And right before that, he had two glorious <laughs> opportunities to score. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Force. He was a force in this game. I, the first time I saw Max Talbot play in a Penguin uniform was in a Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguin uniform. Okay, I went up to Wilkes-Barre. I think it was during that lockout. I went up there to, to watch that team play, and he uh, was flying as a forechecker. What really impressed me right away was his ability to get in on top of people really quickly. And, and if you watch this game, you see that 
every time the puck went into the offensive zone, he would skate straight ahead, just full on. He wasn't the fastest player, but he was so determined to get there first or to get there and, and pressure that defenseman to make sure that he didn't make a play. So he, he was really a valuable forechecker for the Penguins. And then, you know, he was creating great offensive opportunities for himself. It was really amazing. But uh, Tom Fitzgerald whispered something in his ear. And I don't know. He made Talbot laugh. And he probably said, you could have had five tonight or something like that. You know, because that's what it looked like. Um, just so happy for him. What a great guy, Max. As we found out, you know, he's just a fantastic person. And uh, I think he really became a real darling of the Penguins fans, uh, particularly in that game. He, he uh, started to establish himself as the, the superstar. Well, it's funny because everyone remembers him as the Game 7 hero. He was also the Game 3 hero. And without, his right. game, and without his Game 3 performance, there is no Game 7. Yeah, right. You know, so, right. I thought uh, Brian Rust in, you know, the 17, you know, final against Tampa Bay. Yeah. He scores yeah. that huge goal in Game 6, which I think was, you know, the, you know, clinching moment there for the Penguins where I felt, and I don't know if you guys feel the same way, that the Penguins were without a doubt going to win the Stanley Cup. That was just a prelude to what he did in Game 7, but if he doesn't score that goal in Game 6 on the breakaway, then maybe Game Seven is different, but... You know, I, that's, I think, how Max was. And I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of I'm one of the people who didn't remember what Max did, you know. <laughs> you truly do only remember the, the Game 7 heroic. So it's, it's fun to give him some credit and some due here in this podcast because, man, he was incredible, particularly in this game. I'm curious. Well, and Alex are very close. They're very similar players, too. But And, and don't forget, as, as the time was winding down, Stag, you mentioned there was a couple of chances he had. With four minutes left, Talbot hit a post. It's all alone in the slot and gets another chance and I was going to make the save. And granted, there's four minutes left and the Penguins are dominating. I mean, that was a great thing. They never took their foot off the gas once they got that lead. They, they never relented. Um, but you got to think, as the crowd is looking at this, there's four minutes left. Talbot comes, hits the post, and then he almost scores in the slot to give a two-goal lead. And they're like, man, there's four minutes to go. This is going to be the longest four minutes of our lives. Talbot came so close to just giving us a little breathing room and he couldn't do it. Obviously, he eventually did it. With the empty netter with 56 whatever odd seconds left, but um, it, it was a it was a, it had to be a nerve wracking. Why well, I, I remember for me it was nerve wracking. It's definitely nerve wracking. Final four minutes or final ten minutes really to that entire game because as the Red Wings showed, like they can take a punch and come right back at you. They did it games one, games two. They did it earlier in the first period of that same game three. So I think Penguins fans are kind of hoping, waiting. The nerves are going, the heart's going, and you're man, please don't come back. And and, and they were. Uh, Holding on for dear life until Talbot scores an empty net. Then you could uh, exhale, breathe out a little bit, and like, all right, now we got this. Now it's over. But in that entire that entire ten minutes, you had to be thinking like, oh man. You know what though? You know, Sam. And another thing to you know, the great character of the Red Wings. You know, incredible hockey club. Uh, they had a phenomenal shift with a little bit over five minutes to go, where Yuri Hoodler got a great chance at the slot. Flurry made a great save. They were really coming there. A fantastic shift. In fact, so. So strong a shift that um, Hoodler was out there with his line mates, and they were able to get Marion Hosa onto the ice. That's how long they kept the puck in the offensive zone. And he he came in with fresh legs, and they continued that shift. And uh, it was really uh, th- that last gasp from the Red Wings, where if they if they could make it pay off, they they would have tied the game. But they they just couldn't get that next goal, and that's where Flurry had to come up big. Made a couple saves there on that sequence. And then that's when Talbot had the chances, then eventually scored the empty net goal. And on that same sequence, Cook broke his stick. So the Penguins not only were hemmed in their own zone on that shift, 
They're basically five on four because Cook had no stick. His stick was broken. So you're right. Flurry made up made the big save, and I feel like looking back now, that was their best chance, their last gasp, as you say, Saggy, to get it done. But obviously, we can say that now because it's over. But yeah, at that time, it was certainly nerve wracking at the time. But now you're looking back at it, that was that was the Red Wings giving their last shot. And once they didn't score on that shift, it was pretty much over. Penguins had another great chance too, Josh, uh, when they had a two on one with Sid and Kunitz, and. Uh, Sid got the puck to Kunis just a half a second too late, you know, where he got he got in too tight. He couldn't really get a good shot on the net. He was in too close, uh, and uh, they didn't score. But that was a great chance for the Penguins. You know, I, I, something that stood out to me too, guys, is, uh, you know, Pascal Dupuis would later become a really important player for the Penguins, but not so much in this series. He didn't play that much. Dan Bilesman did not give him a prominent role. And I know, uh, you know, in retrospect, looking back, he was not thrilled with that. Uh, he felt like he kind of got shortchanged on, on the opportunity to play a prominent role for the Penguins in that final. Uh, and uh, I just noticed you didn't hear his name a lot. You didn't see him doing much. And you know what he's capable of. He became a very, very good player for the Penguins and a regular linemate of Sid's. But at that time, he wasn't playing with Sid. And occasionally he would get a shift with him. But he wasn't his regular right winger, you know. Garen more or less was. So that was one thing that stood out to me is that just number nine wasn't as much of a force uh, as he would later become for the Penguins. Fair point. Well, when you look at this game in this series, the Penguins obviously win Game Three and make it a two-one series. So in a sense, it's the same exact situation as it was in '08, where they won Game Three on home ice. They got back in the series a little bit. But from your guys' perspective, from your guys' memories, did it feel different? than just being a 2-1 Detroit lead with what things were looking like going into game four. Yeah, I, th- I think it did feel different. I think, I mean, if you knew anything about hockey, you know, you knew that the Penguins were a better team this year than they were last. And, and you knew that the Red Wings were without Pavel Datsyuk. I mean, one of the reasons Setterberg was so taxed was because he had to carry a lot of the responsibility that may have, may have had less responsibility, and, and some of that slack would have been picked up by Pavel Datsyuk. So, um, and the Penguins had Matt Cook, and they had, uh, you know, the the the, the talent uh, was was more experienced, and and uh, they were Billy Garen was uh, you know there, and it just there was a, a feeling that the Penguins were a better team, uh, and maybe the better team. And in Sam's case, he believed that yeah, even after they lost the first two games. So if you were thinking that, Sam, there were probably a lot of other people feeling the same way. I think, and I think that just kind of reinforced what I was thinking, that the Penguins were the younger, they had the fresher legs, they were more determined, they were hungrier. Detroit was just older, slower, tax, injured. injured. Uh, they had, the Red Wings were a lot of issues, and it seemed like as the, Red, as the series were on, the Red Wings were going down, and the Penguins were going up. And, yeah, I believe that the Penguins were going to win the series. I thought they were going to, I thought they were going to, I thought they were going to win four straight, which they obviously did not end up doing. But um, so that game three just kind of reinforced what I already thought. Yeah, I would say from the Detroit perspective, I think, you know, thinking back on it for me, it was just seeing the Penguins' young leadership just step up. I think that Geno fight against Zetterberg in game two was big. Also, do you guys remember seeing him block that Lidstrom shot uh, last minute of game three? You know, like him just sacrificing the body, leaving it all out there. To see Evgeny Malkin, you know, doing that, it's just moments like that from, from him, from Sid, you know, from Latang, you're just like, man, like these guys, now they have belief, now they have confidence, now they have experience, like this is not, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. So <laughs> I think you could definitely start to see that uh, after game three. 
Anything else you guys want to add from game three before we take a break for a day or two and then reconvene for game four in a couple of nights? Yeah, I'd like to, one thing I thought of um, while I was watching the game was uh, just the, first of all, the, the fans outside were, were, were going crazy. Great camp. Uh, the atmosphere in Pittsburgh at that time was fabulous. Uh, it brought back some memories about that. Uh, hearing John Barbaro, the Penguins PA announcer at that time, who had been there for many years and was really a good PA announcer, uh, to hear his voice again coming through on the telecast. Really, kind of almost, I almost, I got tears in my eyes when I heard it because uh, I just loved the way he PA announced for the Penguins all those years, and uh, to hear him uh, calling the goals was was great. Just brought back some great memories, and just seeing that building, that you know, that there, there's there's nothing like those old buildings, you know, because the seats were a little bit steeper and you were a little bit more on top of the ice, and there was just something about that feeling in that particular place. Uh, when when the crowd really got rocking, so it brought back some memories of that too. When I think back to '91 and '92, or when the Penguin fans were, you know, going crazy back then, it was sort of like that. You know, 17 years had gone by, uh, and uh, you know, people were hungry, and you could see it, you could feel it. Uh, there was that great feeling of excitement and uh, in the air, and uh, it really came through on television. I thought that. I, I thought the telecast was really good. Doc Emmerich was phenomenal. I thought Eddie Olchick did a great job. Versus, it wasn't NBC Sports Network. Uh, you know, it was the precursor to that. So it, it just it makes you realize how much things have changed uh, since '09. Uh, and yet, there's something cool about the fact that uh, playoff hockey is the same whether it's in '09 or it's in '91 or it's in '16 or, or '17. There are still all these cool little moments and the atmosphere and the, the difference between playoff hockey and uh, the regular season. It really came through in watching that, that telecast. So we all should be really thrilled that we, we got a chance to experience it, uh, not only us in 2009, uh, but also, Josh, uh, what we all experienced in 16 and 17 again. And we all get to experience the next chapter in game number four in our next episode of this podcast, which is coming your way in a couple days' time across any kind of Internet medium, I guess we want to say, YouTube, <laughs> Twitter, penguins.com, anything like that. You can check it out. All right there. So we will talk to you for our next episode of the Scoop Podcast Rewind, presented by PPG. For Michelle Crecchiolo, Paul Steigerwald, and Sam Kassan, I'm Josh Getzoff. Talk to you then.